Hello, welcome to Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and this is the very first episode of this podcast, but I actually recorded this and actually about a half dozen episodes about a year ago now, January-ish 2022. And I just put them on the back burner, you know, I uh, really wanted to kind of give this whole project time to kind of simmer in my mind. I went about having um, a logo commissioned, um, went about finding music to use for the intro and outro of the shows, and then just recently said, all right, fine, let's just get this out there. Let's just do this. So what you're going to hear now, like I said, it's about a year old. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to upload these original episodes I recorded Maybe one a week, or maybe just get them all out there at once, kind of see what happens, and then transition into newly recorded episodes. But um, hope you enjoy this. I just want to give a shout out real quick to John Karen of JC Art, who created our logos, our artwork for Carpet City Cinema, and also to Robert Morris, who uh, allowed me to use the music you're going to hear for the intro and outro tracks for this. So big thank you to both those guys. All right. So um, you're going to hear a little bit of a repeat when you go into the actual episode because it was the introductory episode. But enjoy. Hope you enjoy. And uh, please, if you have any uh, feedback about the show or any questions you want answered, just reach out to Carpet City Cinema at Gila-Film.com. Or you can uh, get a hold of us on our Facebook page, uh, Carpet City Cinema, and give us a like there and uh, follow us to see what's going on with the podcast. All right. Enjoy. Welcome to Carpet City Cinema, Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver. And for those of you who don't know me, which is probably most people in the world, I uh, own a small production company, film production company in upstate New York called Gila Films. We've just released our first feature film, The Last Frankenstein, which I directed and wrote, and also are uh, putting to dabble a little bit in uh, movie restoration. And I've wanted to do a podcast for some time, uh, just about you know, film in general, so I could take a deeper dive into Movies I've watched recently keep people up to date on what's going on with Gila Films. Talk about what's going on in uh, the film industry in general. So that's that. And this is our, our very first uh, installment. And pretty much just going to go straight through with this and post it eventually warts and all. Because I figure if uh, I try to be too much of a perfectionist about it, it'll just never get done. And I've been putting it off for too long. I just really wanted to do this. So just start with a introduction, backstory about myself, just uh, so you have a jumping off point. I live in uh, Amsterdam, New York. That's where uh, I operate out of, where I spent my whole life. Uh, it's about 35 minutes west of Albany. And it's a big uh, cinematic claim to fame. is It's the birthplace of uh, Hollywood legend Kirk Douglas. You know, I was born in the early 80s and pretty much, uh, you know, from the beginning, always loved movies and television. And uh, you know, one fortunate thing about my family was that everyone had kind of a different genre that they were interested in. I mean, they're all, you know, most of them were, you know, had multiple things that they liked, but they, you know, there were kind of things that I, as I grew up in and, uh, you know, got interested in film, uh, I'd have exposure to different, uh, topics and themes from whichever family member I was with. So, you know, my father loved dramas, uh, documentaries, 
Uh, my mom was into comedies, both you know television and film. My grandfather, you know, loved cop films, uh, westerns, uh, war movies. Uh, and my uncle and aunt were really into uh, older science fiction and horror. And I uh, can't leave my grandmother out. She was into Snoopy. So that's where I got that from. So uh, pretty much going into high school um, is when I kind of started to realize, well, maybe this could become a career because I always had an active imagination. And I thought, well, if you put that together with a love for film, you know, filmmaking seems to be kind of like the, the way to go. So after high school, you know, I got my two-year communication degree, studied at a couple of film schools, and just decided to take the plunge, you know, into uh, filmmaking. Kind of came back to the area um, from the last school I was in and did that kind of classic thing where you're, if a, you know, if a larger production kind of comes into town, kind of starts filming nearby, you get an internship on that or a low production assistant position, but also you get uh, involved in the local filmmaking scene and that allows you opportunities to take on um, larger roles. And I mean, the first job I had on a professional shoot or uh, a non-local shoot, uh, not to say that the local people aren't professional, but was uh, I got a I got a job on Winter of Frozen Dreams, which was a film that shot in Schenectady, New York, home of General Electric, which is like 15, 20 minutes from my house. And it had Thor Birch in the cast. Uh, this was a few years. This was shot in beginning of 2007. So this was like after she had done Ghost World and American Beauty. And But the thing that drew me to the film was uh, Keith Carradine was the uh, second build actor. And I'm a huge fan of the Carradine family, you know, John Carradine, David Carradine. And so that was a really, uh, that was a really great chance for me to get to meet him, which I did on the set and had a chance to talk with him, which was really awesome. But I started out just by uh, uh, volunteering my time in the production office. And then they had a production assistant, the camera crew uh, had to uh, leave the production and drop out before filming started. So I was then uh, promoted to that. And, uh, you know, over time, just, you know, did some short films throughout school. And um, also, uh, it was around this time, you know, I'd already known Jay Leonard, who I mentioned before, um, before I had gotten the job on the uh, Thor Birch movie. But we had kind of just, not for any intentional reason, we had kind of lost contact with each other. And so Jay and I um, reconnected, and he was uh, about to shoot his second feature, uh, he's also a writer-director, and uh, asked me if I would DP it, you know, be the cinematographer on it, and, uh, which I did. And, you know, also another part of us reconnecting was that I had shot a short film uh, appropriately titled The Unfinished, which was unfinished, several years before. It's just kind of an experiment uh, to see how I would fare if I kind of juggled all the positions on a film. You know, I, I did everything behind the scenes on, you know, I ran the camera, sound, whatever. And I had never gotten around to doing the post on it, editing it, just kind of had gotten discouraged, put it on the back burner. And another part of reconnecting with Jay was that he encouraged and helped me to get that completed. And it's not that it was, you know, any masterpiece of cinema, although it did teach me one important lesson, which is that I cannot do everything on a film. I have a great respect for a lot of them, you know, contemporary independent filmmakers who are one-stop shops, you know, they can master the editing software, the effects software, you know, shoot pretty much everything. Whereas I'm kind of like that more traditional, just, you know, produce, I'm good at 
I feel comfortable with producing, writing, directing, and, you know, have some skills at editing, not, not the best, but, but it was important to me to finish that short movie just before I moved on, uh, just so it wasn't just something that was just left abandoned. So I finished that up and, uh, was working on Jay's feature and knew that, you know, the direction I wanted to go in was feature films. I'm not someone who, you know, really was drawn to just doing short works a lot. And I had had an idea in the back of my head for a few years. I'd kind of started writing a script on that. I was thinking that might be my first feature. And it was a, one day though, that just the words, the last Frankenstein popped in my head. And, you know, I've never been a huge Frankenstein fan, you know, um, I guess you should back up a little bit there. You know, a lot of people think of me as a big horror fan because I shot this horror movie. And I do love the horror genre. Absolutely. Um, but I love all the other genres too. You know, I, I really like everything. Um, if there's one kind of subset of filmmaking, I tell everybody that kind of appeals to me is uh, any film of any genre, any TV show, anything from the late 50s to the mid 80s because that's kind of like my sweet spot. I feel like, frankly, I should have just lived in that time period. But I do love horror films. And, you know, but within that, though, I'd have to say that Frankenstein films, even though I do love certain Frankenstein films, I loved, uh, you know, Son of Frankenstein from the Universal Monsters and stuff. I was never like this big diehard Frankenstein buff. And growing up, I read a lot of the classic horror novels. I read The Phantom of the Opera and Dracula and um, The Invisible Man. I never read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But this this title came into my head, and I was kind of curious as to what that would mean, The Last Frankenstein. And it really quickly developed in my head the story that uh, it would be about uh, a modern-day, last-living descendant of the Frankenstein family who, unlike all the Frankensteins you see in film, who have uh, really great jobs teaching at some college or highly respected, they own some inherited estate with lots of wealth and title and really really are pretty easily able to um, try to work at this, you know, this famed Frankenstein experiment. You know, they really don't run into problems till the actual like, experiment's happening. You know, the run-up to it goes pretty smoothly. The character in my film would be someone who's kind of approaching a big life crisis. He's kind of in a dead-end job. He's kind of squandered a lot of his potential. He's in a relationship that's kind of going nowhere. And that's what really kind of intrigued me was that kind of viewpoint on it. And, you know, I quickly realized this was the script that I, would, I was going to do for my first feature. And developing the story and writing it came really quickly. Um, I was really surprised and just kind of trying to find modern-day ways of dealing with a lot of the, uh, you know, with the parts of the Frankenstein story, like how to procure body parts and who would be as modern-day grave robbers. And all along, you know, Jay was really supportive of this whole process um, and really behind you know, getting this film made. Uh, he was going to be the producer on it. And so now we're at about, let's see, we finished his film, I think it was uh, 2014. Finished shooting that. And it was by early 2015 that we were planning to shoot The Last Frankenstein. Now, in a perfect world, I probably would set the whole film in the 70s or in that time period that I like so much. But, you know, it just wasn't realistic on a, a no budget. But just naturally, my aesthetic is vintage, is mid-century. So we decided early on it's going to be, you know, all practical effects. 
that's going to have that kind of, you know, when we get to the color grade, it'll have that kind of very 1970s uh, film grain kind of saturated look to it. You know, I chose locations specifically that had a very vintage look to them. You know, offices with wood paneling. We shot a, a pretty significant scene in a, a mall in Amsterdam, New York, that was built in like 1980 and hasn't been uh, updated at all. And we were also even fortunate to get a couple actors from, um, you know, classic cult cinema. You know, really fortunate. We cast uh, Jim Bolson uh, in a role as a college dean, Jim is probably best known for his role in uh, Strange Behavior, uh, the early 80s horror film. But before that, his first movie was called The Curious Case of the Campus Corpse. And he had guest starred on shows like, you know, V, Matlock. He had uh, played Jughead on the Archie, not the Jughead, I'm sorry, Moose on the after school specials of Archie Comics. And then the other person we cast as the grandfather in the film, uh, the, the patriarch of the Frankenstein family scene in Flashback, was uh, Robert Dix. And, you know, he's you know, second-generation Hollywood. You know, his father was Richard Dix, who was one of the you know, most popular leading men of the 1920s and early 30s. He had gotten an Academy Award nomination, Best Actor for Cimarron. He had been in uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And Bob started his acting career in the 50s as a uh, contract player at MGM. A lot of small roles, supporting roles, uh, most notably... Uh, his last MGM film, uh, which was Forbidden Planet, the famous science fiction movie in which he played one of the ill-fated crewmen. And then he struck out into, you know, once, once MGM let go of a lot of their contract players, Bob went off and did, you know, guest shots on TV shows like uh, Gunsmoke. He did a lot of uh, independent films. He was in Samuel Fuller's 40 Guns. And then uh, in the late mid-60s, late 60s, he uh, paired up with the famous uh, cult filmmaker Al Adamson and appeared in five of his movies even writing and producing one of them, and had gone to retirement in the early to mid seventies. He, you know, one of his one of his last roles uh, before he retired was uh, the James Bond movie *Live and Let Die*. And we got a hold of him, uh, and he liked the script and agreed to play the grandfather come out of retirement. So it was great. You know, we had a lot of things going for us in terms of you know just really making sure this film looked like it was of that era that I love so much. So we shot the movie. Um, well, first we did a Kickstarter campaign to, to get what we thought was going to be our entire budget, which was unrealistic completely. Uh, but we did have a successful Kickstarter run, which was great to get that kind of that seed money to get us off the ground. Uh, really had great support from our Kickstarter backers. And we started filming in June 2015. Shot a couple days in June and July. Uh, seven straight weekends through from July to August. We picked, did a couple of pickup days throughout the uh, early fall, shot a big flashback scene uh, over a couple weekends in November, picked up Bob scenes in December, some insert shots in January, and we were done with shooting. Problem was, we were also done with our, our budget. We really had no money left. We had blown through the Kickstarter money, you know, it was just not in an irresponsible way, but just gone through that before we even finished principal photography. Um, a lot of expenses on the film. You know, we, uh, like I said, our, our effects were all practical. You know, we didn't have, we had two creatures, two Frankenstein creatures in the film, full latex. Uh, we had uh, actors who had to be transported off from the city and given accommodations. Uh, our veteran actors coming out from the West Coast, food. So, you know, we had gone through all our funds. 
And now we were in the post-production phase where we had to edit. And so I just realized, unfortunately, that I would have to edit the film. And I say that unfortunately just because, you know, it's not my strong point. I mean, I'm comfortable with editing in terms of knowing what I want, but I'm not technically savvy. So I had to re-educate myself on the editing software, which I hadn't used in some time. And it just took a really long time to get that cut down. I mean, there was a, a scene with Bob Dix, one of the scenes with Bob Dix. That's a conversation scene between him and his grandson, uh, the main character, Jason, when Jason is younger. I mean, that took that's what, like a three-minute scene in the film, and it took me two weeks just to get the cut to where I was okay with it. So the process of editing literally took like a year and a half. And it wasn't just editing in that time. We also had obligations to the Kickstarter backers we were working on. You know, Obviously, we were behind the schedule we had promised to them, but we always kept the, them posted on where we were, getting out posters and shirts. Uh, we had a couple reshoots we had to do. Nothing, nothing uh, that we couldn't ta- tackle, but we did have a couple significant reshoots we had to take care of. And uh, there was also a time period there where I, I had a, um, a medical incident where I wasn't even able to work on the film. I wasn't able to use computers for three months. So after about that year and a half, we got the cut to where I was like, all right, this is, as far as I can see now, as good as I can get it. And so then I took it around and showed it to Jay and showed it to John Kennefick, who was our cinematographer in the film. And from there, tightened it up a little more. But then really, you know, it just came to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm done with the edit. Now we have to do sound, color, um, we do have some visual effects. We, you know, we wanted to avoid CGI in the film, but the gunshots, uh, we ended up having to do CGI. We had originally planned to do those uh, practically, uh, but the person we were going to bring aboard for that had to uh, drop out last minute when they had a, a death in the family. So there are some minor visual effects we needed done too. So that's when we went about the really slow process of bringing aboard the post-production team members, you know, uh, worked initially with, uh, John and Tracy Kring, who are, uh, uh, a couple of filmmakers who are a couple <laughs> who are married. Um, and, uh, Tracy helped, uh, do some additional editing on the film. And let's see what we're talking now. We're talking, this is why well, first, first communicated with the Krings. That would have been, um, early 2020 well no mid 2020 so we we worked with them to kind of just get that edit polished a little bit then we brought aboard our uh colorist zach chalmers uh nyu film graduate and uh diego benalcazar out of ecuador who did our post sound and uh laurie powers going who did our visual effects who's you know worked on a lot of big studio films and uh, helping to oversee all this was jay who, you know, when I was editing, there really wasn't much for him to do with the movie except to wait for me to get the cut done. But now it was like all hands on deck. And, uh, you know, sa- sadly, unfortunately, Jay had the time to do this to kind of uh, help uh, oversee the post-production process because by this time, COVID, uh, which is still going on as of the recording of this podcast, was happening. And Jay was uh, initially working from home and then his job just unfortunately laid off a bunch of people. But uh, have no fear, Jay's back in the uh, employment again. But, you know, he was, you know, for better force, had all this free time that he was able to use to uh, help uh, shepherd this process of post-production along. And finally, we did reach the end of, you know, just where we had the finished film, nothing more to do. Oh, also, I should definitely, you know, we had the the music score, Steve Noir, uh, 
uh, did our, our completely knocked out uh, our amazing uh, score that he did, which again has a very vintage uh, sound to it, uh, kind of uh, coming out of the synth music scores of the 80s, but with a modern twist. So we got got all this done. The, I, you know, I think the very last thing was just the the sound mix and some. You know, uh, we had to do some uh, fixes on the end credit reel, and it was done. And this is in uh, early, let's see, early to the yeah, first quarter of 2021, I think is when we actually had it finished. And then it was just a, a matter of getting the film out there. And, you know, part of the reason I want to just kind of cover all this with The Last Frankenstein, aside from, you know, kind of an introduction to myself, is also because, you know, the film is still has a life. And I'm sure we'll be covering it, talking about it in uh, future episodes. So we uh, finished The Last Frankenstein. We had a, a local premiere at a theater, a really historic theater in Schenectady called Proctor's. Um, and a great turnout there. Uh, we were fortunate we were able to have that, you know, despite everything going on with COVID. Uh, kind of found a nice window there where the uh, attendance restrictions weren't too bad. And started submitting it to film festivals. So now we're January 2022 that I'm recording this. And we've gotten into 11 film festivals, which is great. Uh, one in Ireland, the other 10 in, in the U.S. Uh, we've won awards at three of them. We won the uh, Outstanding New York State Feature Award at the Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival in Buffalo, New York. We won Best Kill at the uh, Scarefest uh, Film Festival uh, down in Kentucky. And um, we won the Best Effects Award at the Tampa Bay Underground Film Festival. And we have four of those 11 film festivals. Four are still yet to uh, take place that we've gotten into. And we're still submitting. And, you know, plans for the film are just kind of just let's see what, what continues to happen with the film festival. See if we get any good distribution offers. And if not, then we'll just uh, self-distribute. Um, we will, you know, release it through streaming and DVD and Blu-ray ourselves. And I'm currently uh, working on the script for the next project, which is a sequel, which I had never intended to do when I was making the movie. I only intended to be one, a single entry. Um, and now, you know, I just, well, actually it was near the end of filming or during post-production, an idea came to me for a sequel that I really liked. And so going with that and hoping to film that, it has a fall setting. So I don't think it's realistic that it'll be up and running this year, but 2023, uh, late summer, early fall 2023, hoping to start shooting that. And uh, if you're a fan of 70s prison films and if you're a fan of The Last Frankenstein, well, those two things are going to be kind of combined together in uh, in our film, the sequel. But like I mentioned, uh, so that, that's kind of what's going on now with my company, Gila Films. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to oversell it being called a company. <laughs> you know, it's just me. But that's what's going on now in terms of film production. You know, Jay continues to direct movies. Let's see, he's now on his, he just, is. he's in post-production now on his fifth feature, I believe it is. So anytime he has something coming up, you know, I try to, you know, be involved with those too. Uh, didn't really have a big role on this last one he did uh, in case of emergency break glass other than, you know, visiting set and, you know, I'm going to be watching the cut with him, but, you know, love to be involved with whatever he's got going on. Um, and a couple other things that might be happening in terms of film production with Gila Films. But like I mentioned earlier, also restoration, film restoration. So 
I'm a huge fan of uh, very, very deeply interested in the whole process of licensing films, restoring them, getting them released on Blu-ray. And, um, you know, the reason it is because this this represents a great opportunity now that we have with home with physical media, with Blu-rays and DVDs. Well, basically Blu-rays now to not only preserve and give the best visual and audio presentation to movies, but also to kind of, kind of solidify their history. I mean, you could take a movie. I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, all right, this is a really easy example. Uh, Suspiria, you know, everyone, you know, the famous Italian horror movie directed by Dario Argento and Synapse, which is a Blu-ray label recently put that on, you know, UHD, you know, 4k. And they did what is easily the definitive film restoration of that movie. It took them forever in terms of just working with the audio and visual film elements. And, um, you know, it's, it's highly regarded as one of the best, uh, you know, restorations, uh, especially of horror films of recent. And they put that on disc with, you know, that you can buy and it comes replete with extras. So here is an example of how the whole process of physical media and home media restoration and releases has given, resulted in this probably definitive presentation of this famous film and also through the whatever extras are included, whether it's interviews, commentary tracks, um, you know, stills and photo galleries. This is also kind of like uh, a repository of the history of this film. It's this one disc that contains the best way to ever see this film and all the history you need to know about it. And I think I, I just love that. I love that, you know, that, um, you know, physical media provides this. And I also know that there are so many films out there which aren't going to get the love of a, Suspiria or a Wizard of Oz or a Godfather, you know, I mean, to be fair, a lot of the home media labels out there now, a lot of the physical media labels, which if you're a casual buyer of movies, you might not be familiar with, but the collectors know companies like Vinegar Syndrome and Severn, Kino Lorber, they've done some pretty deep dives and found some really obscure stuff. And that's awesome. But still, there's even stuff outside of that, that I just think it's going to be tough for these, some of these films to get, um, they're due because there's just not a lot of um, financial potential in selling them and marketing them. And those are the kind of films I, that interest me in restoring, you know, through Gila films. And to that end, we, you know, when COVID, it was actually a little before COVID, um, I, you know, I, I was following all these different labels on social media and, you know, I'm buying their product and, through a series of events, you know, I had a chance to come into contact with uh, a wonderful guy named uh, Alessandro de Gaetano, who was looking to sell the rights and the negative to the first film he ever directed, which is a 1974 movie called UFO Target Earth. Now, I, again, like I said, I wanted to get into restoration for a while and it's all like self-teaching and, you know, restoration and I should say restoration and, and, uh, physical media for a while. And it was all a matter of just trying to teach myself, you know, like, you know, kind of like, it's not like there was a, a, a online course I could take, right. You know, it's just to try a matter of asking people questions and trying to pick up 
uh, information from, you know, social media and forums. And, you know, it wasn't that I had my eyes on any one title specifically that I really wanted to release. I mean, I kind of dipped my toe in a little bit. Um, a company named Slasher Video uh, released the movie Deadly Prey. And I was fortunate that, uh, which is an 80s kind of uh, Rambo ripoff um, that had Cameron Mitchell and Troy Donahue in it. And one of the people who worked on that film, the, the effects artist on that film, Jack Hojan, just happened to live like 45 minutes from my house. So Jay and I were able to shoot an interview with him to uh, provide for that Blu-ray release. And also uh, one of my favorite films of all time, the uh, Bigfoot movie Creature from Black Lake. That was, uh, there was some interest shown by uh, the label Synapse Films in uh, putting that out on Blu-ray, if they could find the rights. So I actually tracked down the rights holder to that, which was the family that produced it and provided that info to Synapse and have provided them scans of stills and stuff that I have. So those are examples of how I kind of like dipped my toe in, in the physical media waters, but didn't really have any thoughts as to like, okay, this is, this is the movie I want to go after, or this is the plan. It's just really kind of learning. And then it was just a matter of timing that, like I said, I came, I came into contact with Alessandro, uh, who on the credits is billed as Michael A. de Gaetano. Alessandro's his middle name, but that's what he goes by. And the thing that excited me about this was that you know, I mentioned earlier that my uh, my, um, my family, you know, introduced me to different genres, and my uncle and aunt were sci-fi and horror, and this was one of the movies, UFO Target Earth, that I grew up watching with them. They had the VHS tape of it, put out by Scimitar Video. I don't know if you remember that label. And it had a cover, you know, a cover of this uh, kind of like this distorted face skull on it. And I love that movie, you know. Um, it's, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and say, oh, this is the greatest movie ever made, or it's a great film or anything, but it was a movie that spoke to me on many levels, partly because I'm a big fan of regional films, which, and what a regional film is, is it's basically a movie shot outside one of the, uh, filmmaking metropolises, right? It's a film that's shot out of you know, Hollywood and the studio system and away from all these kind of centers of filmmaking and the studios. It's a film shot in, you know, upstate New York or uh, the middle of Kansas or, uh, you know, the lower end of Texas. You know, these films that were shot by local filmmakers in regions of the country that are separate from, uh, you know, where all the main uh, filmmaking and established filmmaking uh, is going on. And I love those films because they retain such a flavor of their community um, you know, I also loved UFO Target Earth because it was like this kind of very, um, well, I should tell you about the plot. I guess the plot of the film is it follows a, uh, a young man who in the film, the region that this film is from is the Atlanta area. This film was shot in Georgia. It's a young man down in Georgia who accidentally has a phone conversation cross wires and he realizes that the, you know, it's a crosses wires with a military phone conversation. He realizes that there's been UFO activity in the area. And this uh, overlaps with uh, memories he has of his childhood of a, of a close encounter. And so he decides to research this and uh, with the help of a couple scientific colleagues and uh, a girl with uh, psychic sensitivities. And the film just has a really um, kind of foreboding, mysterious uh, feel to it. Uh, 
it's got a sense of isolation to it, to the locations and to the characters, which is something that I think is probably, even if he doesn't realize it, might be kind of representative of Alessandro's work. You know, I've seen, you know, after this film, he shot a movie called Haunted, a horror movie, which <laughs> is well known for being the the horror movie uh, about a phone booth in a cemetery and it has Virginia Mayo and Aldo Ray, but that's a movie that deals a lot with like isolated characters, isolated locations, and they're emotionally isolated. And even though I haven't seen some of his other films, just from reading about them, I can tell that they have also those same kind of themes. So when you watch UFO Target, the film has a very, you know, it has a very poor reputation to be honest. You know, I mean, a lot of people argue that not much happens in it and the acting's bad and this and that. And I'm not going to like, try to, to defend it against all those criticisms. It's a film that really, you know, speaks to me on, it's one of those films that speaks to me on levels that it's not going to speak to other people. And that's fine. I get why other people don't like it. Uh, you know, it, it makes sense that a lot of people aren't going to like it, but I love it. And so that's a great example of a film that's probably not going to get picked up by other labels. And in fact, um, I was able to uh, purchase this film from Alessandro because let's see, four other labels had passed on it, you know? So that probably speaks to uh, the my financial chances with the movie, but that's not really important, you know? I mean, obviously I would love to be in a position, which I'm not in now, to make a full-time living off filmmaking and film restoration. At the same time, though, when it comes to, you know, these these pursuits, it's not about the money. You know, that's not the main motivators. I, I make films because I love making films and I love restoring films because I want to see those films preserved. But the great thing about UFO Target Earth um, and that my, my opportunity with that is that I was able to buy the film outright. You know, I didn't have, I didn't license it from Alessandro for five years or seven years or 10 years. I bought it completely. All the rights, the negative. So that would, for my which made sense for my first film because that would give me the chance to kind of learn this process um, of restoring the movie and getting it scanned in high def and, uh, you know, producing extras for it, you know, at kind of a little bit more of a leisurely pace because, you know, I didn't have a clock running against me. So where is that now? Where is that process now? Well, you know, Last Frankenstein has kind of taken front and center with Gila films, especially financially. But now that we're kind of turning a corner with that, um, I'm looking forward to getting work done on UFO Target Earth. I had hoped to have it out last year, just but Last Frankenstein, just to get Last Frankenstein across the finish line, the Franken line, uh, just took up a huge amount of money just those, to get the post-production team aboard. So that really pushed UFO Target Earth to the side. But now that that's done, um, looking to get the negative we have, the original 35 millimeter film negative for the movie, uh, three of the four reels. Um, and then the fourth reel, we have a, uh, a different film element of that from 35 millimeter. So the entire thing is going to be transferred, uh, from pretty much original elements. We're going to do a 4k transfer on it, which I've been told is insane by at least one person to go to that extent. But again, you know, we're talking about preserving this film forever. I say, why not? Um, the Alessandro is totally on board to do, uh, be involved with the extras to do a uh, commentary track. And there's a couple of the cast and crew that I've, um, tracked down that we're looking to, uh, hopefully get involved. 
And as I've talked with Alessandro, we've had a number of phone calls about the movie and talking about his other movies. And probably the movie most people know him for is he directed a movie called uh, Project Metal Beast in the 80s. But um, really lots of interesting, you know, it's, it's crazy. You know, this movie UFO Target Earth was this low budget film shot in Georgia that most people have forgotten. In fact, the, the VHS release that I talked about earlier was the only legitimate release this film's ever had. I mean, just bootleg DVDs was up on YouTube, stuff like that. But that was the only time it was ever legitimate, legitimately released. And so, in many ways, it's kind of a forgotten film. Not totally, but you know, it's, 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 it's not really well known. But then you start learning about it, and all these interesting facts come out just from talking to Alessandro. For example, that the music score to the movie, because a little bit about Alessandro, his background prior to making this movie is he had worked in, in film distribution. He had worked for Cinerama. He had worked in the theater in New York City. So he, even though he isn't uh, by himself a necessarily a well-known person, he's like, and this happens in the industry, you might not be well-known, but you know everybody else. <laughs> and so the music score for UFO Target Earth, it's not credited, but it was actually done by the association, you know, who did the song Windy. Um, a couple of the cast members in the film, I had no idea. The the main military actor and the character in the film is played by uh, Brooks Clift, who is Montgomery Cliff's brother, the famous Montgomery Cliff actor. Um, the Another character in the film, uh, a professor at a college, is played by Phil Erickson, and I, I didn't realize who Phil Erickson was. Phil Erickson was Dick Van Dyke's original comedy team partner. They had a comedy team prior to Dick Van Dyke getting the Dick Van Dyke show, and uh, Phil Erickson just happened to be living in the Atlanta area when uh, UFO Target Earth was shot and got that role. So it's lots of little interesting things and other stuff that we're going to include in the uh, extras when that when that gets done. So when's this going to happen? I'm hoping by we'll get the scan started, the transfer started middle of this year, and from there it'll be a pretty quick process. I mean that's it's a six week turnaround just to get that done, and we'll be working on the uh, extras and whatnot too. So that hopefully this will be out by the end of the year. And you know, there's some other movies I'm interested in trying to acquire because I just. I have a feeling they're probably no one else is going to want them. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes. So Hilo Films, yeah, film restoration, filmmaking, podcasting now with this. And uh, yeah, I probably should have said this a while ago. Why is it called the Carpet Cinema, Carpet City Cinema Podcast? Uh, Carpet City is the nickname for Amsterdam, New York, where I live. Um, we were at one time the number one carpet city producing, I'm sorry, carpet-producing, rug-making city in the country. You know, we were one of several cities in upstate New York that was along the Mohawk River. You know, General Electric was known for, I mean, sorry, Schenectady was known for General Electric. Amsterdam was known for carpets and rugs. Gloversville nearby was known for gloves. So that's where Carpet City Cinema Podcast comes from. So the other thing, other things that I want to discuss on this podcast as it goes on, you know, one is what's going on in filmmaking and film news. Um, you know, we're obviously kind of in the time now with kind of the big news with film is, you know, what's going to happen with uh, theatrical releases versus, uh, VOD and streaming. And I won't dive too with, in light of COVID, I won't dive too much into that this episode, but I would say if there's one thing that's kind of, what's the big news going on right now is I think that's one of the biggest and still ongoing topics of discussion. What's the future of uh, film distribution, basically, you know, obviously theatrical distribution was, uh, crippled by COVID, 
and there was uh, concerns that um, it might never come back to anything approaching its original strength, that the window between uh, film getting a theatrical release and then streaming was going to become, not, uh, become basically non-existent. Obviously, there was a lot of rise of the power and um, increase in the product seen from uh, streaming streaming sources. But some of that's kind of reversed itself a little bit, too. We've already seen as the pandemic slightened. So I won't dive really too much to that other than that that is just kind of acknowledging that that's kind of one of the biggest things going on in the contemporary uh, filmmaking scene. But also it's worth talking about is the um, lost a lot of people. You know, it's one thing people always bust me about is on my Facebook feed. It's just constantly, you know, posting who's passed away, who we've lost. But, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge all those people who've kind of gone before us and, what is it? We're in, we're not even in February yet, right? And of 2022 and just lost a ridiculous amount of people. You know, Bob Saget of uh, Full House in America's Funniest Videos, Betty White, uh, of course, of uh, Golden Girls and Hot in Cleveland and um, Mary Tyra Moore. We've lost um, Louis Anderson, the comic, um, Peter Bogdanovich, the famed director of The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon. Uh, Meatloaf just passed away as of this recording, the singer and actor. One I wanted to just kind of touch base on was uh, Yvette Minou, the the leading lady of the 60s and 70s. I mean, I loved Yvette Minou. It's just beautiful, but, you know, a gorgeous woman, but also, you know, also a talented actress who kind of came on the scene. It started late 50s, but really kind of hit it in the 60s with films like The Time Machine and Where the Boys Are, Light in the Piazza, uh, Toys in the Attic with Dean Martin. Uh, into the 70s, she was still, you know, headlining feature films, you know, maybe a little bit more genre stuff, but, you know, fun movies like Skyjacked and The Black Hole. She was in Jackson County Jail. She was in a, one of my favorite 70s TV movies, Snow Beast, which is the uh, made-for-TV Yeti movie with Clint Walker and um, Robert Logan and Bo Svensson, which, strangely enough, I was actually, there was a, guy on eBay or a girl, I don't know, the person on eBay who was selling off uh, old contracts from films. And I bought a couple from him and, and I got the, uh, I got actually was able to purchase the event news contract, signed contract um, with Douglas Kramer Productions for Snow Beast, which is pretty wild. And uh, Yvette had been married to Stanley Donan for a while, the famed uh, director who passed away a couple years ago, who did, you know, Singing in the Rain, um, Charade, Two for the Road, until they eventually divorced. But yeah, she passed away uh, about a week ago, 80 years old. So it's just, you know, that's a, you know, it's kind of one of those split things, right? You know, you're, you're sad that they passed away, but also, you know, she had a good life, you know, 80 years old and had a great accomplishments and body of work. So it's, um, it's not, you know, something to be totally disheartened by. And the one movie of hers that I've not seen that I really want to see is this film called Circle of Power that she did in like the early 80s, which I don't think has even had a VHS release um, to my knowledge, although I've <laughs> I recommended it in enough places for sure. Um, but it's an interesting f- looking film. I, like I said, I haven't seen it. Um, and the plot is, uh, you know, if you read the IMDb plot, a group of husbands with their wives participate in a reunion where everybody will find his hidden secret. And they basically employ these really demeaning, almost like games to do this. But, uh, it just looks like a really interesting movie that I thought for some time that I, I'd like, 
I'd like to see that at some point. But yeah, so rest in peace, Yvette Mimou. Um, and then the other thing, you know, kind of obviously cover on this podcast is what I've seen recently uh, in films. Uh, I won't, you know, dig too much into the TV stuff I'm watching today. Uh, I am kind of, you know, I, I like to make my way through, you know, maybe one or two shows at a time. I'm not really a binge watcher. Don't really have the time for that. But the two shows that I'm kind of keeping up with right now are the original Lost in Space, um, which I'm on season one of, um, and Law and Order SVU, which I'm a fan of, you know, the old school Law and Order stuff. And my girlfriend and I are uh, making our way through uh, Banachek which is we're both big fans of the uh, 70s uh, NBC mystery movie shows like McMillan and Wife, Columbo, the Snoop Sisters. We're big fans of all those. So I was finally able to track down the out-of-print DVDs of Banachek with George Papard as an insurance investigator. And well, not a lot of episodes of those, but uh, we're, we're digging through those. But I'll, I'll probably comment more on those once we finish them up. But film-wise, recently, I uh, co- just want to touch on a, a couple films I checked out, and the two of those were Death Wish 2 and 3, which I just watched last weekend. And uh, the original Death Wish with Charles Bronson is, you know, it's one of my favorite 70s movies. It's a great film. I mean, it's great use of Bronson. I mean, the thing people have to remember about Bronson back then is he wasn't established. He was leading man by that time when that was made. And he had this long career before him, and he had done a lot of tough guy roles, but he still wasn't fully the Bronson we think of now. You know, it was really Death Wish, which, Death Wish, which pushed him over into that, which became such a huge hit. It turned him into like an A, A-list movie star who was kind of like, you know, the, the character of Paul Kersey. He put in that, but kind of became almost synonymous with him. And I'm sure most people are familiar with Death Wish, but in case you're not, uh, you know, Charles Bronson plays Paul Kersey, an architect in New York City whose family is brutalized and attacked by thugs who uh, kill his wife and rape his daughter and who ends up uh, basically in a, you know, in a living, in an awake comatose state in shock and not recovering from that. And, you know, this is all going on in New York City, which is overwhelmed with crime um, in the early 70s. And Bronson ends up kind of slowly kind of taking matters into his own hand, you know, realizing that, you know, kind of becoming self-empowered to stand up against um, the street crime. Uh, you know, it starts with him going on a business trip. He's an architect and, you know, going out west where uh, one of his clients, uh, you know, you know, they get to know each other and kind of bond a little bit. And um, he presents him with a gun as a gift, as a kind of going away present. And, you know, Bronson starts basically going out in the streets and making himself appear to be a vulnerable target to uh, thugs. And then when they go to attack him or rob him, he then ends up killing them, which um, frustrates the police, of course, because they have a vigilante they have to deal with, but excites the populace because they finally are seeing someone stand up against the crime going on. So the movie's a great, it's a great film, though. It's incredibly well shot. Uh, great cinematography, uh, good score by Herbie Hancock. Bronson, like I said, perfectly used. Um, great sense of location and time, like so many 70s New York City movies, like The French Connection, and you just feel like you're right there. And it's just, but it's also just like a great exploration of that whole story. It's, 
you know, because of the Death Wish sequels, I think there's a kind of tendency sometimes to just dismiss them as these just revenge action movies. But the first Death Wish is really, uh, you know, it's it's this character study of this person who goes from, you know, you know, he talks about, Charles Bronson's character talks about how he was, did serve in the military. I think he was a conscientious objector. He's, you know, he's not a full bleeding heart, maybe, in my opinion, but, you know, he's kind of a, a more, like, a more peaceable person, his character, uh, a more liberal person in terms of how to deal with crime, who then makes this transformation into kind of, like, you know, self-empowerment and taking control of the situation away from the criminals. And um, it's just a really great, exploration of that character and that situation and that and the changes that character makes my my only big gripe with the film is the whole way that they deal with the police presence of vincent gardenia um plays uh frank ochoa a police inspector who is basically assigned the task of dealing with uh this vigilante they don't know who he is and you know i think gardenia is a good actor i like him you know seen him in obviously another some stuff too but I just don't think that the filmmakers take on that character of the police officer and the choices Gardenia made in playing him. They kind of take away from the realism of the film because there's almost like a very subtle comic uh, touch of comedy in there. Not like, not blatant. It's not like they play it for laughs or slapstick, but there is definitely some deliberate choices they've made regarding that character to kind of give it us a little bit of humor. And it just, it just kind of doesn't, jive well with the whole tone of the movie so anyways love death wish um and had never seen any of the sequels there's you know there's five death wish movies and plus the bruce willis remake and um finally last weekend got around to watching death wish 2 and i'd heard you know that the sequels are enjoyed but not really that good so i watched death wish 2 and death wish 3 last weekend which all three of the first, the first three Death Wish movies were all directed by Michael Winner, um, the British director. And Death Wish is probably his most famous movie, I'd say, of everything he did. Uh, but he did a lot of movies with Bronson besides those three Death Wish movies. He, they did The Mechanic, which is another phenomenal movie. Uh, they did The Stone Killer. Um, and Michael Winner did some other movies too. Um, the Sentinel, which is the 70s horror movie. He did The Big Sleep with Robert Mitchum. Um, and basically, what happened, I guess, was Death Wish. So the original Death Wish was produced at Paramount, but um, Death Wish 2 would become a canon film. And, of course, everyone's familiar with canon's reputation. Uh, It was a company that existed uh, as early as the late 60s, early 70s, but by this time had um, been taken over by uh, Golan and Globus, um, Menachem Golan and Yorob Globus, who were Israeli cousins, who uh, basically took over the company and turned it into like an... Uh, not ultra low budget, but like a, a respectably B B budget, B level budget, um, powerhouse of action movies and um, horror movies, and you know, basically, eventually, basically ran eventually ran the company into the ground, and um, so they were looking at doing a Death Wish two. The right, you know, the the project eventually was no longer, you know, the Death Wish, uh, intellectual property was now, um. I found its way to Canon Films and they wanted to make a sequel with Charles Bronson and Bronson wanted to work with Michael Winner on the sequel, he insisted, and Winner hadn't had a successful film in some time, so they did Death Wish 2. So the film starts out, and I should, you know, when we talk about films on the podcast, I am totally, total spoiler, I'll just totally, you know, I'll just probably mention spoilers throughout, 
But Death Wish 2 finds uh, Bronson's character living in L.A. Because the famous ending of the original Death Wish is that he's wounded in a shootout with uh, you know, a criminal. And the police come across him and uh, Vince Gardino's character, Ochoa, basically tells him, get out of town. We're not going to arrest you. We're not going to turn you into a martyr for the vigilante cause, but we don't want you in New York City. And the film ends with him transferring in his job to Chicago. And, you know, the famous and very deservedly so last scene, last shot of the original Death Wish is Bronson arriving in Chicago uh, at like a train station. I think it's a train station. And as he's uh, as he's meeting with the uh, member of the business that he's working for, uh, he witnesses some hoods, uh, you know, harassing a woman, and he goes to help her pick up her belongings that they've knocked out of her hands. And as the criminals look back at him and kind of make fun of him for being a good Samaritan, he you know points his finger at them and smiles and points it as a gun. And the film just freeze frames there, which is a great ending. But we pick up in the sequel, and. Now Bronson's relocated to L.A. He's still working as an architect. Um, his daughter has not really improved significantly, though he's brought her out there with him. Um, and she's uh, at a home where she's trying to get uh, taken care of. And he's dating a, a newswoman played by his real-life wife, Bronson's real-life wife, Jill Ireland, who appeared in a number of movies with Bronson. And, um, of course, as is the Death Wish style, uh, a group of uh, irredeemable thugs and cretins uh, break into his house. They knock him out. They uh, rape and kill his his um, the woman, his housekeeper, Bronson's housekeeper, and they uh, you know abduct and rape and eventually cause the death of his daughter. And so Bronson in Death Wish Two, to some of the kind of the plot is that he goes into vigilante mode again, although whereas in the original Death Wish, he was kind of, you know, tackling the issue of crime at large and kind of just empowering himself, like I said, to kind of go out and to deal with this kind of like unsolvable crime element. And this film, he's actually more directly trying to track down the specific group of five criminals who, you know, who, who killed his housekeeper and his daughter. And so he, yeah, he goes out into the, the slums of LA and uh, starts that process of tracking them down. So my thoughts on the film, I mean, it's a pretty big come down from Death Wish, to be fair. I mean, I was not bored. It's an enjoyable film. It's entertaining. But, yeah, it's 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 a significant step down. Like, I would I wouldn't say it's a good film. You know, and the problem here, and this is a, you know, we we'll get into Death Wish 3 too a bit, is that instead of this exploration of this topic and, you know, this, you know, kind of thoughtful, thoughtful exploration of this situ of a situation in a character, you know, with these beats of action in it, it just becomes this kind of very repetitive and increasingly illogical and hard to take seriously um, kind of, like revenge film where he's where Bronson is, you know, it's just, it's just going through the motions of him, you know, one by one by one, finding each of these scumbags and killing them. But it's just becomes very repetitive. And, and like I said, it becomes really hard to, hard to believe that, you know, the sense of reality that was in the first death wish where they tried to make the situations plausible and realistic, it becomes kind of ludicrous in death wish too, where 
you know, Bronson essentially, you know, LA is a pretty big place and he essentially, you know, takes up the second life uh, outside of his, his job and in a nice place he lives at where he's pretending to be a bum living in a, in a flea bag apartment in Skid Row so that he can go out and walk among the criminals at night to try to find these thugs. And he does. He finds one by one by one, I'm, which just seems hard to believe that, you know, in a, in a city the size of Los Angeles, you're just going to stumble across the random five cr- uh, criminals who happen to uh, kill your loved ones. And, and especially, you know, there's the famous scene in Death Wish 2. One of the most famous scenes is where he finds the first guy and he notices he's wearing a crucifix and he says, you know, do you believe in Jesus? And the criminals, you know, about to shit his pants. And he's like, yes, yes, I do. And then Bronson's like, you know, you're going to see him real soon. And then he shoots him. And I was just watching the movie and I'm like, well, then maybe you should have asked him before you shot him or <laughs> who those other four guys he was hooking up with are. Because uh, that probably would have saved you a lot of time and effort instead of having to find them randomly. But and some people might say... I, Here's the balancing act with any movie. Someone might respond to that and say, oh, come on, it's just a movie, you know, just just have fun with it. But here's the thing about movies. Any movie, whether it, it's the most wild, outlandish, science fiction, fantasy, horror movie, or it's a movie based on a true story, opposite sides of presenting, uh, you know, reality. Regardless of where it's coming from, the film has the the reality it presents. In other words... You know, Star Trek. Star Trek deals with aliens that could never really exist in real life. Transporters, phasers, all this outlandish stuff. But it's part and parcel of the reality that Star Trek creates. And it, as long as it follows the rules within that reality that it creates, then it's believable. You know, there's a transporter in Star Trek that allows people to beam down from ships to planets. Saves a lot of time on filmmaking. You don't have to actually show them flying down in a smaller ship. And even though the transporter is fictional, it would never exist. Uh, you buy it, you completely buy the reality of it because it's part of the world that's been created within Star Trek. Now, if they go against the rules of this reality they've created, if they, uh, if a starship in Star Trek gets a distress call from, you know, three days away, and they're like, well, we'll just transport that person from this distance, then you're like, well, that's not you're going against your own rules that you, you can't transport people from halfway across the galaxy. You know, so that's the thing. Uh, and this goes for films, like I said, based on true stories too, you know, cause even films based on true stories are never going to be 100% accurate. You create uh, a world in the film and that world has ground rules and then you have to stick to the ground rules regardless of whether that film is based on reality or fantasy and death, Wish, obviously, you know, though not based on a true story, it's set in the real world. And it has ground rules. And so when you have a character who's going through, you know, trying to find these people who killed his his family, and they are located in one of the most densely populated parts of America, and he's just randomly coming across them without really any effort. And when he has opportunities to uh, make this job of tracking them down, which is his sole reason for existing right now. You know, Paul Kersey, the character, his sole reason for existing in Death Wish 2 is to take revenge on these people who killed his family. He's not really so much trying to, you know, strike some bigger vigilante cause. He's trying to take revenge on the, these attackers. When he has an opportunity to make this a lot easier, he doesn't even take it up, you know, just, you know, you found the first guy, maybe ask him who the other four guys are and where they are. So you have this kind of, you know, it's, you know, repetitive track a guy down, kill him, track a guy down, kill him, track a guy down, kill him. Um, 
that becomes increasingly increasingly unrealistic. Um, so that's a big part of the problem I have with Death Wish Two. Uh, and, and then again, they bring back the uh, Frank Ochoa character, Vince Cardini's character from the first Death Wish, who basically the you know the New York City establishment is concerned that you know Kirstie's identity is going to be revealed because they've heard about his activities in L.A. And that it's going to make them liable, so they send uh, Franco Choa out there to deal with that. And again, it's kind of the same, some of the same issues. He's playing the same character the same way. So again, I still those issues I had with that character in the first movie are still here in the in the second movie. Um, there's an interesting aspect of Death Wish Two, which is kind, of, but it doesn't explore it really that much. Is the effect that Bronson's actions are having on his relationship with Joel Ireland because basically he's spending all his time either working as an architect or going uh, trying to track down these thugs. So it's causing some distance between him and Joel Ireland, who just is constantly trying to get a hold of him and talk to him and and wants to move on with the relationship. But they really just use that as kind of like it's an interesting idea to see how revenge would affect him and the character of Paul Kirsten in a new relationship. I think that's something that would be really interesting to explore uh, and go more in depth. But instead, their whole use of that story element is basically it's just kind of like a time filler it's like okay let's have a scene of her picking up the phone calling him he doesn't answer and that's that and let's have another scene of you know there's a couple scenes i think where she's just it's just jill ireland trying to call charles bronson and he's not at home because he's out killing people and then at the end near the end of the movie like i said spoilers you know there comes a moment where she realizes what he's been up to and it, it destroys their relationship but, you know, that's something that should have been more uh, deeply explored, I feel like, throughout the theme of that and the topic of that throughout the film. Uh, the music for Death Wish 2 and 3 is by Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, you know, who I guess was neighbors with Michael Winner. And even though, I, you know, I love Led Zeppelin, I gotta be honest, the scores aren't really that great in 2 and 3. I mean, they have a couple of cool moments when he uses some some synths, synth work. But, you know, Herbie Hancock's score for the first Death Wish was you know, really strong, and this is definitely a come down. And the films don't really have the really strong visual appeal, uh, you know, that the first Death Wish did. Um, I believe that Death Wish 2, Death Wish 2 had two cinematographers, and if I'm not mistaken, one of them was the cinematographer on the first Death Wish, but... I don't know why, but because I haven't, I started listening to the audio commentary on. Uh, oh no, that's incorrect. I totally misspoke. One of the Death Wish Two had two cinematographers, and one of them was uh, Richard Klein, who uh, is a really good cinematographer. But there was a second DP on Death Wish Two, who apparently Klein left at some point. And I haven't gotten to the part in the audio commentary where they talk about that why. But even though Klein was involved, the film doesn't really have a great visual look, so I don't know how early he left. They did not work on the first Death Wish. That was shot by uh, Arthur Ornitz. But the visual look of Death Wish 2, although it's better than 3, it's still, again, it's really not that aesthetically appealing. And that's not because, you know, it's... I wouldn't want anyone to take that the wrong way, obviously. It's set in a lot of grungy locations and stuff, and that's fine. There's a way to shoot that and make that look good, but it just looks kind of bland. Um... And then even like the use of the daughter in the second film, uh, Kersey's daughter. I mean, again, I just feel like she's just kind of like window dressing. Like, oh, we got to have someone here for, <laughs> to get raped and killed so that we can have like a reason for Bronson to go on revenge. And it's not like she's, even though realistically her character wouldn't have much to do because of the condition she's in, I feel like the presentation of her is not even as a character as more than just like, almost like a plot device. So, 
saying all this, you know, again, you know, it's still an interesting film to watch. It's still enjoyable to watch. You're not bored, but it's not the kind of, it's not the film that the first one was in terms of quality. It doesn't, it does not live up to the promise of the sequel to Death Wish should have, which there is room for a Death Wish sequel that could be good. I think there's lots of places they could have gone with that. And uh, I think they instead kind of took a by the numbers shoot 'em up revenge approach with Death Wish 2, which is unfortunate. And so then Death Wish 3, Death Wish 3, again directed by Michael Winner. I mean, the, the just behind Death Wish 3 is that now Bronson moves back to New York City again to be with a friend. And this friend that he's going back to visit lives in a, a crime ridden neighborhood. Um, that basically the police cannot get under control. There's a gang there um, over uh, that's basically run over by uh, a guy named Straker, who's played by Gavin O'Herlihy, who's best known as the original, best remembered probably for playing the original Chuck Cunningham on Happy Days, and he was in uh, Superman 3 and Willow. And he's running, he runs a gang that's just running rampant in this one neighborhood in New York City, and all the, the good citizens are being terrorized, and Bronson arrives there just in time to find his friend that he came to see murdered. Uh, die from uh, being attacked by this gang. And so Bronson, again, now decides to do what he does so well, uh, to uh, take back the streets from these thugs. And the police this time around, um, Ed Lauder's in the film, the great character actor Ed Lauder, he plays the local police supervisor who basically wants Bronson to do what he does and he'll try to kind of cover for him as long as Bronson stays in contact with him and kind of keeps him up to date on stuff because he just wants this problem solved. And so Death Wish 3 is definitely, it's definitely an improvement upon Death Wish 2, kind of for the wrong reasons, though, because basically what Death Wish 3 did is it's like, we're going to take the implausibilities of Death Wish 2 and the shoot 'em up attitude of Death Wish 2, and we're going to kind of put that on steroids. Instead of going back to the realism of Death Wish 1, we're just going to push the problems of death wish to even further, but now it's going to, we're going to push it to the point where it's, it's entertainment. I mean, death wish three, it's like, it's not that you can't tell that it was directed by the same director as death wish two, but it's like, you feel like it's the same mind, but on like crack or something. I mean, it's, and it makes it much more entertaining, even though it's, again, you're not going to sit there and say, Oh, this was free. That's a good movie, but it's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of enjoyment in the movie. I mean, the plot is ludicrous. I mean, it's just beyond... It's one of those plots that's so stupid and unrealistic that you just zone out the plot at some point. You just don't even... You just check out the plot and you stop even trying to make any sense of it. I mean, so the idea is that, you know, Bronson arrives and, like I said, you know, he finds his friend dying and gets a... And the way he comes into contact with Ed Lauder's police character... Police uh, officer character that he gets arrested initially. They think he killed his friend. And Ed Lauder, of course, in jail, Ed Lauder recognizes him as Paul Kersey and just takes him aside and says, you got two choices. You can either go do your vigilante thing and report to me, or I'm going to bury you in the prison system so far, you know, <laughs> they'll never find you, which is just ludicrous. You know, it's a ludicrous Again, it's just such an extremely ludicrous, even in the early 1980s where the penal system and the legal system was in the early 1980s in New York City, that would never happen. Uh, Bronson, he had he had nothing, you know, it, it, it's laughable that that's the leverage he's using on Bronson. Again, this people would say, might say, oh, it's just a movie, enjoy it. But again, it goes back to the ground rules. 
We're supposed to believe that this character of Ed Lauder's police officer has some kind of leverage to force Bronson into the situation. But the leverage he's talking about is just completely non-existent. And it's such a it's such a transparently stupid thing for him to do that again, like I said, you just check out. It's not even like somewhat implausible, it's just like beyond ridiculous. Um and and the strange thing is like they don't really even explore it that much because Bronson's reaction is basically like, Yeah, I'll go out and kill people, whatever about you though. I don't really care about you. And there's only like until you get you know, there's a couple of moments throughout the movie where Bronson kind of and Louder kind of cross paths, but like it's almost kind of like they it's like they started filming Death Wish 3 and they wrote the scene where Louder threatens Bronson to be his personal vigilante. And then it was like someone at a staff meeting was like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Bronson wouldn't care and he, there's really no threat there. And they're like, oh yeah, all right, let's forget about that then for the rest of the movie. We're not going to write out that scene where he makes the threat, but we're not going to really address it anymore until we need Ed Lauder's character to show up again, I guess. It's just it's just really ridiculous. Um, but again, to Death Wish 3's uh, benefit is that kind of attitude of like, you know, whatever. <laughs> We're going to just go crazy with this that kind of makes it um, more entertaining. Um, you know, as things progress in the film, you know, Bronson's character um, basically begins a relationship with a public defender played by Deborah Raffin, um, who, of course, means she's got to die. Um, and that galvanizes Bronson further. And as Bronson's dealing with the criminal element in the city, he uh, really goes to some extreme lengths to arm himself. He uh, even gets a P.O. box and has a rocket launcher sent to it. Which, of course, you know, that's how you do things in an 80s canon film. You get a rocket launcher to your P.O. mailbox. And um, he finds out that his friend who died at the beginning of the movie has some weapons left over uh, that he had taken as kind of like souvenirs from their time in the military together. And it's not just like it's like a couple rifles he's got or a bayonet. It's like, you know, a huge tripod-based machine gun. <laughs> Two of them, needless to say. So it's just like that kind of like... Uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to hit for the, hit for the bleachers kind of attitude of like, you know, uh, d of presenting the story that does make it at least, uh, more entertaining, uh, this, this entry. Um, and there's just like lots of little things, which are just ridiculously funny. You know, there's a scene, you know, the famous scene that doesn't turn into a, a gif or a gif, whichever, how you pronounce that of Bronson beating up a thug and, uh, a little boy in the neighborhood says, all right. And, and, you know, pumps his fist at Bronson and Bronson turns around and pumps his fist back. You know, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of fun scenes in this movie and it just of course ends with, you know, complete mayhem. I mean, it's again, though, it's, it's almost like comic book level. I mean, and the idea that the police couldn't get this problem under better control without Bronson is ludicrous. The, um, the, uh, the way in which, you know, just the degree to which people are <laughs> shooting for, at each other without trying even to take cover. I mean, there's so much about this movie which is just like it operates in like an alternate universe of complete unrealism. But, you know, like I said, it's it's a lot more fun than Death Wish 2 was. It has that fun sense to it. You know, O'Herlihy, O'Herlihy as the villain, you have an O'Herlihy, I mean, give him props. I mean, you know, he's got a great look. He's really tall. He's big. He's got that red hair shaved in the middle. I kind of I really liked his his uh, approach to playing the lead the lead criminal. 
Um, and that's a th- you know it's the interesting thing about the Death Wish films is they all have really interesting supporting casts and lots of familiar faces before they became famous. Like the original Death Wish, it was, you know, Paul Kersey's wife was played by Hope Lang, who is you know an Academy Award nominated actress from the fifties and sixties. She'd been in Peyton Place and you know um, Bus Stop and had started on The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. And it was just kind of an interesting choice to play his wife. It was kind of like you know kind of, I guess, maybe a little bit leaning into that girl next door kind of thing. And of course, lots of early roles in Death Wish from, you know, Christopher Guest shows up in it, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. Uh, it's Jeff Goldblum's first movie. He plays uh, one of the thugs who attacks Bronson's family. You get the Death Wish too. You got Lawrence Fishburne in a really early role and he has a, as one of the thugs. And he does have a great death scene. And, uh, you know, Tony Francioso, who's an actor I love, who unfortunately, he plays uh, the police commissioner in Death Wish 2, unfortunately, completely underutilized. And then you get to Death Wish 3, and you got, you know, um, Alex Winter, it's one of the thugs, you know, Bill from the Bill and Ted movies, and Marina Sirtis, you know, Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation is one of the uh, local citizens who lives in this troubled neighborhood and who who uh, ends up getting getting the uh, requisite Death Wish rape and murder happened to her but um yeah i mean props to O'Hurley he and 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 to these casts that they managed to round up for these movies uh but yeah so to, to death was three it, this was winner's last um last hurrah in, in the film franchise which he had uh first helped to launch and it's kind of like he's just like whatever let's go all out <laughs> so I, I could definitely more more recommend that as um as insane as the movie is. So that's Death Wish 2 and 3. Uh, and Jimmy, yeah, like I said, Jimmy Page did 3, score 2 as well. And, it, you know, stick to Led Zeppelin, I guess, when it comes to Jimmy Page, not so much his scores. But so hoping to check out Death Wish 4 and 5. I'm hoping to uh, get those in soon and check those out. But yeah, I think that probably about wraps it up for this first episode again, words and all. So I hope you enjoyed it, the first episode of uh, Carpet City Cinema. Uh, probably going to record like five or six of these, post them up, get a Facebook page going, get a link on our, our website. Um, if you are interested in keeping up with Gila Films or Last Frankenstein, our website is www.gila-film.com. That's G-I-L-A-F-I-L-M.com. And we're all, we also have a Facebook page uh, for both Gila Films and The Last Frankenstein. And uh, you follow up on enough of those, you'll find our Twitter and our Instagram. But yeah, so uh, thank you very much for... Uh, being patient with the first uh the pilot episode of uh carpet city cinema and uh see you soon